Warning. The podcast you are about to experience may contain content that isn't suitable for younger audiences. So, if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Welcome to Villainology, a podcast revolving around our favorite personifications of humanity's darker side, and what truly makes them the scourge of their respective worlds. I am your host, Rob Mobley, and I hope that this episode finds you in good spirits this week, and if it doesn't, I hope that we can at least provide you with a brief reprieve from the world around you. For those of you that are new here, the basic idea is that I present each guest an opportunity to discuss at length someone who is widely considered to be a villain, and to offer their own personal insight as to why they find them so intriguing. These opinions are totally subjective, and I find that hearing the thoughts of other people on someone you either love to hate or hate to love helps to better understand these characters as a whole. Our guest today is easily one of the most prolific people we've ever had on this show, having written dozens of plays that have been performed nationwide, including one where he had me resurrect the corpse of Anne Frank in order to have her do battle against a rather nefarious neo-Nazi regime. He's also an actor, an author, and long-lost son of Tony Stark, Mr. Michael Knight. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. What an intro. Prolific. I'll take that. You've been doing a lot of work with a company called New Generation Theatrical recently. What yes. can you tell us about that? New Generation Theatrical is a it's a new company that we really only founded in 2019, uh, me and my friend producing partner, Aaron Safer. And the whole kind of idea behind it is to get newer and original theater out there to people, especially in Orlando, Florida, because that's where I'm located is Orlando, Florida. And it's the idea that we can do new stories and do stories that inspire and stories that really can transform a person's day, whether or not you're the person creating it or the person imbibing it. We want to give you an experience that's not your typical experience in a theater. And whether that means we change the way that it's presented to you or we give you something that you've literally never seen or heard before. Specifically, my focus with the company is to do brand new original work by people who are sitting at home. They've got tons of work in their documents folder. They've written tons of plays and there's no conduit to really get them out there. And and I want to give them a voice and I want to give them the ability to to put that play on. And that's really what our goal is, is to, to really find that originality in theater, even if it's something that you've seen before. We want to make sure that our version is not the one you've seen before. Sure. And, and there's one specific project that's been taking up a lot of your time. Yes. Cracking open a cold one. Yes. That has been a real treat to see every couple of weeks. I had the pleasure of doing one a, a few weeks ago. And the idea of it is very fun. But for our listeners that don't know, how, how would you describe this? Cracking open a oh, well, Every time someone says cracking open a cold one, no one can say it. It's very weird. <laughs> every time we do the Every time we do the intro... On the videos, everyone's like, Cry the pay, uh, which is great because you're supposed to be drunk. Cracking Open a Cold One is a is a series of 10-minute plays in which the idea is we know that artists aren't working a ton right now. Some are, some aren't. And we know that people want to be heard. And everyone's doing a Zoom play. Everyone's doing that. But what we wanted to do was do something that is short and sweet, gets artists working, 
and doesn't waste their time. So what we do is we take suggestions on social media throughout the week. There's a theme and then we ask for a word or a sentence or an object or a rhyme and I and and we we get suggestions all from people and then we give that to a writer on a Tuesday night and by Wednesday morning they have to write a brand new 10 minute play and then on Wednesday night we get two to five actors together on a Zoom call get a little drunk and we do the play so the whole process takes technically less than 24 hours so we get in we get out and it has to be funny cuz everyone doing a, a play right now online it all still seems super heavy. And I'm like, I want this to be stupid. I want it to be loud. I want it to be funny. I want it to be completely off the wall to give people brevity and to get people just working on a quick project. And that's really what it is. And you can find that at New Gen Theatrical's Facebook page. We do it every two weeks on a Wednesday night. And basically, yeah, we just, we get together, we record the play and then we put it up as as like a, a video. And it, it's never longer than 10 minutes. It doesn't take a lot of your time. doesn't take a lot of artist time. And the artists do get paid to do it. You also have a rather lovely novel out there called Ember's Gifts. In fact, I have it sitting right here next to me as I'm talking to you. Now, of all the things you could have written about, what made you want to make your first book based around Christmas? So, if you know anything about my writing, my writing is never saccharine sweet. It's always fast-paced, witty, biting, and full of swear words. And it was it was like 2012 and it was my first year in Orlando and I like to read I love Christmas like for all of my like you know inner darkness <laughs> I I love Christmas <laughs> it is my favorite and I like to read a Christmas book at Christmas and it was my first year in Orlando and I had like no money like I had purchased some gifts I didn't have any more money and I didn't have a book and I said man I like to write what if I just wrote my own Christmas story and it just started out like write a 30-page short story, Christmas story. And I remember laying in bed and just thinking of a storyline and the story, and I kept thinking about two Christmas carols, which was Sleigh Ride and Winter Wonderland. And there's there's a story in both of those. You can sort of see what's happening. And somehow this concept came to me and I was like, all right, I'm just going to sit down and, and write this story. And I, of course, I had just moved from Michigan to Florida. And I was like, this is going to be a set in Michigan. It's going to be set in northern Michigan. And I started writing it. And it took me two years. But I kept writing it. And I just fell in love with this. It's really, honestly, it turned out to be this saccharine, sweet, Hallmark movie Christmas story set in like this very tiny little town in northern Michigan. And it's that perfect thing where, I mean, I just was like, I want to put every Christmas tradition I know into this book. So it, it really just came from a need to feel the Christmas that like I needed at the time because I was a fish out of water in Florida. I had very little money. I, I wanted to feel that spirit. And so this was a way for me to pack every tradition, every feeling, every moment, everything that I imagined Christmas to be or had experienced it. And I wanted to put it into a book. And so because uh, I love to write and that's that's how it came to be. So the book is full of every Christmas tradition, moment, feeling like you like hot cocoa. It's in there. Lights, they're in there. Decorating a Christmas tree, 
taking a sleigh ride, doing a snowball fight, building a snowman, everything that you could want out of the ideal Christmas is in this novel. I'm here for that. Do you have anything else in the pipeline coming up? I've got a couple shows going up at Winter Fringe uh, here in Orlando. So there's going to be one called The Creepy Christmas, which I actually wrote a short Christmas cabaret, but it is definitely not saccharine sweet. I also have a play <laughs> called, um, it's not at all, it's, it's real raunchy. I also wrote a play called The Fabulous King James Bible, in which it's about the development of the King James Bible based on the fact that King James was uh, historically gay. And so that's a play that's going to be coming up, as well as I have a couple plays going up in Chicago at Stageworks Theater in Chicago. There's a kid's show and there's an adult show that I wrote because they're doing a really cool thing in which right now trying to do things with royalties is very difficult and they want to be able to film it and get it out to the parents and get it out to the patrons. But, you know, paying the rights to film something is difficult. So right now the owner of the the theater reached out and said, hey, you're an original writer. Can you just write me something? And it was a brilliant thing for someone who is a original writer right now, someone who's not like a published writer. It's a good time if you own a theater, if you want to do something, reach out to your local writers to be like, can I have something to do so that we can keep theater alive? And it, it's really special. So yeah. Now, I, I don't want to keep our listeners waiting any longer. Tell us, Michael Knight, which villain have you chosen? Well, this villain is, I wouldn't say near and dear to my heart. It's more like someone who's haunted my nightmares since 1997. Somehow this character has invaded every aspect of my life because I'm such a huge fan of the series and I am truly terrified by this character. And as we go forward into our modern times, the parallel of this character as this terrible, evil, mystical being and the things that are actually happening in our world continue to converge and it gets a little bit scarier. And so you can see how people's influences and the way that the mind works and it's chilling. And so I have chosen the ultimate evil sorcerer, Mr. Tom Marvolo Riddle, Lord Voldemort. Don't be a fool. Why suffer an horrific death when you can join me? Bravery. Your parents had it too. Tell me, Harry, would you like to see your mother and father again? Together, we can bring them back. All I ask is for something in return. So why, sorry, um, why he who must not be named? (laughs) Truly because he terrifies me. I know that a lot of people on this podcast uh, or people with villains in general, they're like, they love their villains. You know, ah, that's, ah, there's something like fun about them. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Even like a Thanos. You're like, ah, Thanos. Like, ah, that's a fun guy. But Voldemort to me is, is a proper villain. I mean, there's nothing likable. There's no charm. There's no... There's no cute Disney song. There's no nothing. With Voldemort, he is evil. And he is a person that we all 
have seen in one way or another in the actual world, whether or not they're they're threatening as far as, you know, the ability to kill instantly. But Voldemort in and of himself is the, in my opinion, epitome of what being a villain means, meaning someone who is evil, someone who is irredeemable, someone who has only the worst interests at heart to to destroy, to take over to break down and that that is what Voldemort is. I literally throughout my life like I said in the in the opening I have had nightmares through my life about encountering Voldemort. I mean white face, no nose, basically floating. I I remember I had a dream about Voldemort. This is the most vivid one. I was in my supermarket back home in Michigan and people started running and screaming almost like and I I mean I don't want it to get too intense but what I would imagine you know, like a, a an attack would be like, like an actual attack in the world where all of a sudden, quietly, people start screaming and running. And I, I was in this supermarket and he's just there blasting people down and things are exploding and I'm running from this terrifying person. And when I woke up, I was, I was horrified. I remember that dream and it's one of many. And I realized that's exactly in, in the storyline of Voldemort. That is what he does. It's that wasn't just like me manifesting it the way I would imagine, I guess, like a modern attack would be it in the novels. That is what he does. He goes places. He kills people. He's terrifying. And so to me, that's that's why I wanted to choose Voldemort. What do you think J.K. Rowling was trying to say with him being the main overarching villain of that series? I think it's it's the concept of totalitarianism. I think it's it's the it's the thing that threatens us at all times. It's it's groupthink. It's psychology of of superiority. I think is what she was trying to say. She's trying to the, the books are saying this is a person who okay, does he have a white face? Yes. Does he have red glowing eyes? Yes. Does he have no nose? Yes, he's terrifying. But that's not what makes him terrifying. What makes him terrifying is the fact that he will stand in front of people and declare his superiority. He will kill without a thought. He will use people's own weakness of thought and weakness of thought about themselves and use fear to change them into thinking that they have to oppress in order to maintain something. That's the thing. In order to like maintain status, you must oppress. And I think that's something that the world has faced hundreds and hundreds of times and you know she creates this oh it's a fun it's a wizard school and it's a whole community and and you know they have a secret world and everything but it's to show that like no matter how much power you think you have even if you're magical even if you have the ability to turn a tea kettle into a mouse there will always be these oppressive people who believe in their utter superiority based on their own broken psychology who can garner followers and threaten the the lifeblood of a community that that not just you know is somebody murdering people scary of course anytime you get someone you know rolling up and and killing people without a thought or you know dangling somebody over something it's horrifying but it's more the poison of thought it's the ability to take these thoughts and and stand in front of people and be that guy on the pedestal screaming and going we are stronger and because of our blood and because of what we are we should we deserve to be above others and the fact that you know you go to work every day and and do stuff it's and uh, that that's so not eloquent the fact that like you <laughs> the fact that like you, he appeals to the people who do not have the presence of mind to think for themselves 
He's saying, sure. stick with me. You are a wizard. Therefore, it doesn't matter whether or not you're a bad person. The simple fact that you're a wizard makes you better than other people. And therefore, not only should you be on top of them, but you should oppress them. And I think what's crazy about that is, you know, it folded into what they're trying to say with that is those people do it from this place of intense insecurity about themselves. And they do it because of the world that ha- that, that has formed around them. And so we have to be wary of the way that we treat people or the way that we even allow people the power because their deep insecurities will manifest as pure evil. You know, the, the way that they, they feel like if they lose money, they have no more power, things like that. If you let other people who are different than you take a status next to you, you lose power. And it comes from this just deep-seated insecurity. And of course, you know, Voldemort being an orphan and the fact that he was abandoned, he already has a, a feeling of loss and needing to control because his circumstances were so out of his control to begin with. And I think that we have to pay attention to marginalizing people and, and stripping their power from them as humans, you know, people who who are orphans, people who are homeless, people like that. You have to show compassion to those people because without it, you never know how that can unfortunately manifest itself in such a way that, you know. Sure. What is it about these kinds of characters that seem to continually draw us in? Voldemort isn't the first of his kind character-wise, but he's certainly one that has stuck in our proverbial consciousness, particularly our generation. Why do you think that is? Because we need them. We need these... Oh, God, that's actually terrible to say. But we, we, need the, we need the stories about these people to remind us that these people exist. We, especially our generation, up until literally right now, we have not dealt, at least in the United States, and I feel like in the UK and places like that, we have not dealt with proper oppressive authority. We've heard about it. Like we've we've heard about it for years in in different wars in different places. You know, in the United States, we had you know the the concept of slavery is terrible. We've heard about how the English itself was oppressing us and how we needed to to rise up in World War II. You had Hitler. You've had all of these historical examples, and and it's always been no matter who you are, it's always been oppression is bad, and people who will manipulate minds and oppress need to be fought against. Something And we, we never experienced that. And yet we were told that in school and then we were given villains in multiple or, or, or more like villainous organizations in um, villainous organizations in various pop culture things that, that were placeholders for those. The Empire in Star Wars and sure. then in this. And we are drawn to the idea that, uh, that we need to understand it. So that we are ready for it should it ever manifest because we know that it can manifest. It's, it is a representation of a very real threat that faces our entire world and generation after generation after generation. I mean, not to get like political here, but I really do believe that it's stories like this and figures and villains like that that inspire a lot of the social change and a lot of the social vocality that we see in the world today is because we grew up reading about the fact like we grew up watching the battle of hogwarts and watching all of the gryffindor stand and then oh yeah most of the hufflepuff stand and you know and like that moment when you read that and you go 
That is justice. That is what we it's need powerful. to It's so powerful. And in the face of oppression, when this when this noseless bastard is standing outside the walls speaking to you in your freaking head and telling you like, "Hey, give one person up and I I won't I won't kill you all." By the way, I have which the implication in that is I have the power to kill you all and I will. But look at how benevolent I am. Give up one and I won't kill you all. And the idea that we saw Groups of children stand up and go, that is wrong, and I will not take that, was so inspiring. And I think that that's why we're drawn to it is because we need that inspiration. We know that these these figures exist in the world. And I think to me, that is another reason why Voldemort himself is so scary because, again, I will continue to say it. He's magical. He's he's a murderer. He's, you know, he's got a wand. But at the heart of it, he is this all oppressive being his his whole broken psychology from the idea that he was an orphan to grow up and he needed to remain in control and then being afraid of his own mortality it's it's crazy people who are afraid of their own mortality and i think those are cautionary tales too if you find people who are afraid human beings in the real world who are afraid of their own mortality or don't accept their own mortality i don't know if it's afraid everyone's afraid not everyone but a lot of people are afraid of death. They're afraid to die. But there are people who outright object their own mortality. I know people, and I won't name names, but I know people who won't go see concerts of their favorite bands as they age because they refuse to see their bands aging in front of them. Why are you calling me out like that? I'm not man? calling you out. I'm <laughs> <laughs> if that's you, I'm sorry, but uh, no, thing, no, 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 no. If anything, I'm bummed that I didn't get to. Like, I haven't been able to see a lot of. Like, I, I still haven't seen Paul McCartney. Yeah, I would kill to go see right. him now. But and you, you would love it. But there are people, there are people who are like, I can't go see Paul McCartney because if I see Paul McCartney as old, that reinforces that I am old and that I will die. And I think that through my experiences, the people who I have met who are in denial of their own mortality, people who refuse to accept their station in life and people, no, I, I, that's not a right thing to say, to accept their station in life. More like can't find ways to be content, you know, with, with what they have and need more. Those are people who I keep at arm's length because for some reason they're, they're denying the natural way of life itself. And that to me is frightening. And it says to me that like your concept of humanity in general is something that is to be feared. Like if you had, if, if you could sacrifice people or something in order to stay alive, you would. And that's frightening. And these people do exist right now. You know, oh, yes. I mean, we, we, we see people right now who, if they get sick, they'll, they'll pump themselves full of stuff and, and declare that they feel better than they have in 20 years. And that's scary because it's like, Hey, not everybody gets that. And, and if you're going to take those measures you know, and throw people under the bus in order to continue to survive in a world where some people aren't. That's evil, my dude. Mm -hmm. So, and I think, so, so to go back to the question that spawned all this, it's, that's why these stories pervade. And that's why we need these stories is because we have to understand the very real threats that are out there. You brought up mortality. Mm -hmm. If immortality was Voldemort's end game here mm -hmm. i mean we know that he split his soul up into a multitude of horcruxes but then in the very first book he was seeking out the sorcerer's stone right or the philosopher's stone depending on where you live 
why did he not seek the stone from the beginning? Why did he initially split his soul up like that? I, I, I guess there's there could be arguments whether or not he knew about it. However, Dumbledore, I believe, even says he was only doing that as a placeholder. Like the, the the elixir of life, the stone, what the stone gives you is is a prolongment. It does not give you a specific immunity. So so sure. it's something it, Voldemort cannot have a crutch. That's the thing. And even if he does, he will not let you see it because he himself is scared of it. Again, he does not want to say I am weak in any way. He he denies weakness. He sees love as weakness. He sees vulnerability as weakness. And I think that's, of course, one of the things that's being said in the books is that your humanity, your love, your vulnerability, your your flaws make you more powerful than anything. And he refuses to accept weakness. So I think if he himself was like it's it's a lot like stubborn. It's a lot like stubborn people who who hate taking their medicine. Obviously, they need it in order for their organs to continue working, but they see it as weakness. And I think that if Voldemort went originally after the elixir of life that came from the from the philosopher slash sorcerer stone he would see that as a weakness he would not want to have to continue to drink something in order to stay alive and in addition to that as we've seen with the advent of uh the fantastic beast series just drinking the elixir does not stop you necessarily aging it just keeps you alive so you he would still get older and weaker physically while continuing to stay alive and that's not good enough for him again anything that results in weakness for voldemort is in and of itself something he cannot accept and that is one yet again another reason that it makes him scary and threatening it's it's funny that we bring that up because voldemort in the last book says that potter lives is due more to my errors than to his triumphs how true do you think that statement is it's such an interesting statement for him to make because I believe in his head, that's the closest thing to quote unquote humility that he would ever get because he's not, he is at the same time not saying that he's, that he has messed up. He, because in the statement, what's actually he's saying is Potter is weaker than I am. He has to assert sure. that no one is stronger than him or has bested him necessarily. It's that, he has overlooked certain things and that's as close to humility as he's going to get me personally i don't i think there's a modicum of truth to it i think it's it's about 50/50 on truth because harry what what i love about the way that it, that the novels are written is it's not like harry is this he went to you know one or two years of school and then all of a sudden he's all powerful and can stand up what makes harry strong and what makes him good is his bravery which is why he's a gryffindor he doesn't know what spell he's going to use. He's going to give him a big fat Expelliarmus, and he knows that. That's all he's got. He's, he's but you know, it's a one he's, he's got, he it. he's, one spell he's got his good. bread and butter. He's going to throw out the biggest Expelliarmus you've ever seen, and you better be ready for it. But the thing about Harry is that he, um, he's going to step out. You know, and I think I think the first moment that we see that is in four when he steps out from behind the from the gravestone and he's like i'm going to step out and from then on he always steps out always will no i mean he he walks out with big dick energy every single time from that moment forward whether or not he knows what he's about to do or not and so where voldemort says that he's like it's due more to my errors than his superiority i don't think harry has a has a great arsenal i don't think that he's any he's exceptionally skilled at least 
in seven, I think at that point he he knows his shit. Like he's been in enough fights that he's like, I at least have been in enough fights to understand when I need to block and what spell might work here. He's got a good roll of decks. Uh, yes, at spells. that point, at that point, he knows how to fight as opposed to just like hoping for the best. But I do, I do think that he is not more skilled than Voldemort at any given time. He just has more bravery. Or at least can match that. So Voldemort, while in and of itself hasn't screwed up a bunch, he just keeps getting met by a kid who's just got full of piss and vinegar. And that's not Voldemort (laughs) screwing up. That's just something he didn't account for, which I guess could be construed as him screwing up. But I do think Voldemort's like, this kid, he's not good at anything. I just keep somehow fucking up. And I think the thing that Voldemort won't say, he that's like I said, that's as far as he'll go. He will say, it's due more to my error. But what he will not say is it's it's due to my arrogance. It's due to my need for Voldemort a dramatic bitch. Like, he's full tilt diva. He can't do nothing without without monologuing and a big old moment. And I love that about him. And I think that's as close to charming as he gets for me, where I'm like, ooh, that's fun. I would wa- I'd still want to sock him in the mouth. I would not want to have a beer with him. Absolutely. But, like, I think that that's the thing is every time he encounters Harry... He's got to do something fucking stupid instead of just rolling up and be like, I'm going to kill this bitch. Which is, I think, is really cool about his development as a character is that by seven, that is his whole damn thing. Is he's just like, I'm done. I'm not going to strap him to a, to a gravestone and talk. I'm not going to surround him and try to get him to use the Cruciatus curse. I'm not going to, like, send Bellatrix to do this. No, no. I'm done. I'm done with, with the games. I'm going to roll up and I'm going to zap his ass. I'm so done with it. And that, I think, is the point. So to the question, it's a it's a little bit yes and a little bit no. I think that it is a true statement. It's it's due more to his errors than, his, than Harry's prowess. But at the same time, Harry's prowess is the fact that he's going to make Voldemort screw up. We've only seen this character adapted once. And it was by the incredible Ray Fiennes, who did, you know, just a superb job with that role. When it inevitably is done again, how would you wish for the creators to approach this character? First of all, aesthetically. I would want to see him aesthetically. I think that it was a, it was a interesting choice, and I can see how like the filmmakers are like, ah, we're being avant-garde, by making him more human, you know, by, by not giving him the red eyes. By not keeping his hood up often, by letting Rafe's actual voice, and I mean, the, the affectations that, that Rafe put on his voice were good. And I mean, the, I, don't get me wrong, I loved Rafe Fiennes' interpretation of Voldemort. I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. There were some things that I think the writing didn't do the character justice. So aesthetically, I'd want to see him looking like he's supposed to. I want the red eyes and the snake slits. Yeah. I want the hood up most of the time so that we do not see him fully and there's a, there's actually a moment in four in the fourth film where he comes out of the cauldron and he's in the like morphing phase so he's like he's starting to become himself and it's about two or three seconds before it finalizes it's i think it's the moment he opens his eyes it's the moment he opens his eyes. If they'd have stopped it right there, his skin is a little translucent. It's a little bit more thin. Yes. Um, his eyes are spooky looking. They don't look like human eyes. It's inhuman yeah, looking. And I, I think aesthetically, that's what I'd like to see. In addition, I would really like to see the aloofness because Voldemort is scary when he speaks because he's speaking. He loses, he, as a character, he loses power when you let him talk too much. Which is why the moments that he does get to talk, 
in the novels, every single time he speaks is very specific. And I feel like by by seven part one in the interpretation, they were kind of just putting him out there like he's a dude. Oh, yeah. Like he's he's out there. He's talking. He makes a joke about politics. You know, he's like, oh, spoken like a true politician. And you're like, he's not supposed to be whining and dining his yeah. death eaters right now. No, I think if I saw him again, I need him to speak less. He needs to speak outside the graveyard when he speaks. And then that. And then, of course, like one of the, I mean, the scariest moment, the moment that haunts my dreams, which is, again, one of the reasons is when Harry's got that big dick energy in five and he's yelling at Bellatrix and he's like, he can't hear you. And he just goes, oh, but can't I? And it's like a whisper. And he's there and it's chilling. Mm-hmm. And this is terrible. I can't remember if in the novel he's telling him things like you have to mean it. I need you to do it. He's He sort of says that in the film a little bit. Again, I need him to stay quiet. He yells it again. And this is when he speaks, he loses power. When he yells at Dumbledore, like, shut up, you know, you're weak. I'm going to kill you tonight. That shows his character. And so I think like in moments like the beginning of Seven, when he's sitting at the table, I just want to see his eyes. And I, do, I want when he speaks, it needs to be nary more than a whisper. And it needs to be just the whatever is written in the novel and no more than that. Like, when he steps out at the end of the novel and is giving his Hitler speech and being like, from here on, there's only going to be one house. It's going to be Slytherin. I'm going to put this hat on this kid's head and I'm going to light him on fire. Again, when he speaks, it's specific. And he gains and loses power by that. And I just feel like they let him talk too much in the film already. So he needs to always be quiet. And I would love them to affect his voice higher. Oh, yeah. He needs to not be human. However, again, I, I do respect because he the, I, the idea of the character is such a human character, which which is somebody who is abusing power, using bigotry, racism, and just general fear and, and cult thinking, which is exactly what he is. And so I think the choice to make him more human for those aspects was good. I would just, now that I've seen that, I would like to see the more book character the, with, with more of a, a spooky voice and a spooky look. What I like about Voldemort is there, the lines are blurred as to whether or not power corrupted him or he corrupted his power as far as magic goes. Like there's so much that he delved into and researched and you can see how it morphed him physically, how it changed him from being Tom Riddle into this monster that we know. Here's here's the thing. I I definitely think that that the you know the the concept of breaking your soul having a physical transformation on you and sort of making your brain and your skin and your face and everything like that i think that aesthetically that's necessary in storytelling to to show physically what is happening to a person inside when they split their soul when they commit murder or when they when they have such a disregard for humanity or or other people or empathy or feelings that what she wanted to do with that was show how a person transforms like the way that when he comes back to ask for the job at Hogwarts, he's already moving toward that, but he's not fully there. And we see how someone changes in, in their youth to become the, the sick bastard that they end up becoming, which happens to so many actual people. And the fact that maybe you could be redeemed, you, we can see it, but we can't really see it until it's there. I would say, however, I do not think that power corrupted Voldemort. I think that he is, like many people, he is a product of his circumstances. And he, I say this only because he wasn't given power, he took it. 
He created his own power. And so I think he was already corrupted before he ever had power. He was not born into privilege. He was not super adept at anything. His brain was so fucked that he he created power for himself, which is almost scarier. I don't know a ton of like Hitler's backstory. I really don't other than he was an art student and he got kicked out of art school. I don't think anyone was like, "Here, bud, take the take take the presidency and because of that you're evil." I think he was evil and therefore took the presidency and became the ruler of Germany because he was already screwed in the head. He had these lunatic ideals and people were people listened and that was the problem. So power didn't corrupt him. He ended up corrupting people using his power but he seized it he seized the power and we see that in other people you know especially you know people who have no power and it's literally their their charisma or their their ability to get in other people's heads their psychology is so messed which is you know especially for voldemort it's such a sad story because of course he was an orphan he was abandoned he was abandoned by by people who came from worlds of abuse and those things get you know whether or not you believe it those things can get embedded in genetics and it's up to humanity as a whole to have the empathy for people and and nurture that and help those people because when those circumstances put people in certain areas their brains unfortunately end up broken and we have to put infrastructures in place to help them or you get voldemort's and and the thing is is you get one voldemort for every 10,000 people who are born into shit circumstances, you know, and those poor people just end up part of the system and, you know, they'll fight back at the system if they can. And we end up with someone whose power is completely corrupted. So I, I don't think he was corrupted by power. I think he, he seized power based on his own mental and moral corruption from who he just was as a person. I could buy that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to give Voldemort an out. Does that make sense? Absolutely. 100%. Like I, I don't want to say it is because of this or because someone was like, hey, you're a good student. Here's like the, the head boy ship. No, he manipulated himself into being a head boy. Mm-hmm. He didn't he didn't get the head boy ship and be like, well, I'm going to do my best with this. And then Bullshit. I ended up realizing that he loved. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like he didn't get that position and be like, oh, wow, the power. I'm I'm drunk with it. He was like he. He knew exactly what he wanted to do with it before he got it, so he made it so that he got it. Does that make sense? It does. It really does. I, yeah. I don't. I don't want to give him the if if I were to give Voldemort any sort of empathy, and and I think Dumbledore sort of does this in the novels. I think he he gives him this, and I like I like Dumbledore's calm over itness that he has whenever he sees Voldemort because he he recognizes by the time we meet Dumbledore, he recognizes that Tom Riddle's a lost cause, but Dumbledore, I think. He he tries to impart upon Harry, like, hey, this kid came from really unfortunate circumstances, and we can't ignore that. We have to have sympathy and empathy for, for uh, Merope and for the Gaunts and the way that the Wizarding World treated the Gaunts. And we have to have, you know, empathy for people who are rich and take advantage of young women, which I know that technically Merope took advantage of Tom Riddle Sr., by using a, a a thing, but again, it's it's the fact that these poor people see people go by and they want a piece of that life and they try to get it. And you know the fact that when Tom Riddle came out of his Tom Riddle Senior came out of his stupor, he just left this poor woman and was like, "Oh my God!" Which makes sense. He was he was duped into you know falling in love with her, and of course he just left her. And it all of that 
is where you can find sympathy and empathy for Voldemort. However, I would posit that Voldemort was given every opportunity to be better. He was provided with an opportunity through Dumbledore. He didn't even need money. Dumbledore gave, you know, there's a fund that sends kids to Hogwarts. He was watched. Even Dumbledore says, he's like, did I know he was the most evil wizard of all time? No. However, I did know that I wanted to keep an eye on him. Now, whether or not he means I had bad feelings about him, which I think he did because he's like, hey, remember those uh, kids you tortured and took their shit? Don't do that. Um, (laughs) He knew he was, but I think Dumbledore was more like, I wonder if we can save this kid. I wonder if I can help. And I think, you know, like many people, he was given every opportunity to show himself to be better. He could have done wonders for the magical community. The man is is a genius. He's incredibly powerful, incredibly adept at what he does. Well, Ollivander said so himself. Oh, yeah. You know, he did great things. Terrible, but great. I mean, he's he's an amazing wizard. And if he'd have put that to good use, it would have been amazing. But all he saw from a world that gives people opportunities through magic, I mean... Other than Gamp's Law of Elemental Transfiguration, which doesn't provide you food out of nowhere, you can do a lot with magic. It gives you a lot. And I think, you know, JK does a really good job of implying there's still class struggle, there's race struggle, even in a world that does that. But freaking Hogwarts students are super fucking privileged. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They they get more privileged than than a lot of kids. They are at a boarding school. You know, there's probably a lot of kids in the magical community who don't get to go to Hogwarts. Their parents shoot to rate, you know, so they're incredibly. I wonder privileged. if there's like a magical public school out there. <laughs> I think for, from just what I've thought of, I think it's it's either you send your kid to one of these schools only because of the statute of secrecy or you raise them yourself like you homeschool them. I don't know if there is like a magical public school, though. These schools are full of dumb kids who don't know math. And I find that very funny. Looking at you, Seamus Finnegan. <laughs> but again, Voldemort was given all those opportunities. He had that privilege to do well. And even after he got out of school, he got a job at Nocturne Alley with a prolific tradesman. He was charming. He had every opportunity to do good, and he just didn't because all he saw out of the world that he was given, it's it's Harry. It's 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 Harry's story. Harry did exactly what, what Voldemort should have done. He he saw a world that gave him opportunities that he never grew up in. He grew up in an abusive household. He was never treated well. He was he had secrets kept from him. He was nearly killed multiple times and yet harry said this world has given me so much and all i want to do is make it a better place and use what's being given to me use this privilege to make it a better place and voldemort saw the exact opposite he saw oh i'm going to take this and use it so voldemort is irredeemable in that way he is not somebody who is cool or charming or nice or someone you want to hang out with he is a terrible human being You see, normally at this point, I would ask for your final thoughts on what Voldemort means to you. But at this point, it feels like we have completely trod over that territory entirely. Well, no, I mean, and and if I can if I can sum that up, yeah, please. What Voldemort means to me personally is the idea of evil existing in the hearts of humanity. He is the nightmare that we all need to be wary of. So whether or not, like, he's somebody, he's not somebody I say I hold near and dear to my heart. He's not somebody who I'm like, I got a t-shirt with Voldemort on it. You know, I'm not out there rocking a dark mark. And I'm not saying that people who, you know, are super Slytherin and they love Nocturnale or that's, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is to me, he is necessary as a villain, especially for this generation. He was necessary as a villain because he showed us what somebody who is willing to 
fracture their soul for power is capable of. Putting that into a magical world and seeing it kind of, you know, taken up powerfully to 11 and being like, obviously, we don't have the ability to split our physical soul and remove it and put it into an object. But it's the concept of splitting your soul by doing terrible acts. And then, the, again, the transformation, the cult mentality. And I feel like I, I wish I had touched more on that. The fact that he has the ability to entice followers that he does not care about at all. He will send waves of waves of them to die. He doesn't give a single shit about one of them. He will let them die for no reason. He just wants them to follow him. And to to see this person just promise and undercut other magical people and undercut muggles and do all this and and say we deserve to be in power when he did, all he wants is he wants to be in power. He doesn't give a shit about that. He's not going to give anything to anybody else unless it can serve him. Like he gives the ministry to his followers. Why? Because then it gives him the power. It's not like, hey, you've done good. I want to give you nice things. Even, you know, Wormtail's hand is a sign of you cut your hand off for me, bud. So now you have a hand that's going to kill you later. You know what I mean? Like, not that Voldemort was the reason that his hand killed him. I'm just saying what Voldemort means to me is the cautionary tale of watching out for these cult mentality people who will get under your skin, tell you that they love you, tell you that they value you, but they don't. And they will gain followers and they will gain power and try to poison your mind by telling you that people are dangerous who are not and use these ideas to infest an entire community. And I think we need to remember, we need to see it in that relief. We need to see it in the relief of an evil sorcerer with a snake face because it shows it so glaringly. And we need that in order to see the people who still have snake faces underneath their actual faces. I just got chills, man. <laughs> that was really well said. I'm thank you for coming on the show. Happy to. This was so. God, I, I mean, I knew this was going to be a good one. You, you're, <laughs> if, for those of you out there, if if you ever need any sort of fact checking when it comes to the Potterverse, there are two people I can recommend. Michael Knight being one of them, and Lauren Culver. Good old Lauren Culver. Good old Lauren Culver. We'll get her on the show at some point soon. Thanks again for coming on. Oh, happy to. I'm going to leave a link for the Trevor Project in the description below. Uh, the fight for LGBTQ plus rights, it's far from over. And the Trevor Project has proven time and again to be a safe haven for people within that community, providing crisis intervention and suicide prevention services, especially to young people who are struggling to find their identity and voice within this world. If you have a little bit of spare change, I know times are hard out there. But if you have something, please consider donating to them. Thank you to Ross Lampert for composing the theme song to this podcast. He's a brilliant guy, and if you're in the market for any sort of music production needs, head on over to his website at daggerandink.com. And thank you, listener, for carving out a little bit of time for us today. If you like the show, please give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram at Villainology Podcast. Drop us a review if you like what we're doing, and give us a comment on who you'd like to see discussed next. And hopefully we'll see you next time. Stay foolish, mortals. Ha 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 ha!